Welcome to the SG Engage podcast, where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas, and best practices to help you drive impact. Welcome to this episode of the SG Engage podcast. I'm your host, Steve McLaughlin with Blackboard. For a number of years, the Blackboard Institute has published the NP Experts series, and every so often we try and revisit some old and maybe not so familiar topics and and refresh them and update them with a a modern lens and a a really new look on things. And in the latest NP Experts book, we take a look at this topic around branding and what it means for nonprofit organizations and, and how do they adapt to changes in the importance of branding over the past few years. Joining me on the show is Eric Computer. She's the partner and chief growth officer, Big Duck, and she was the co-author of a new article in the NP Expert series on branding. So welcome to the show, Farah. Thanks for having me, Steve. Now, it's been a few years since you originally wrote some work on branding in the nonprofit sector almost seven years ago. I'm curious, what's changed and also what has maybe stayed the same? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the original article that I wrote in 2013 in the first NP Next uh, ebook, I believe, was really focused on email marketing and how organizations can use email specifically to build relationships with their supporters, constituents, activists, donors, et cetera, in order to, of course, not only get their brand recognized, but again, create change. And I think in the article that I co-wrote with Sarah in the 2020 version, we're really focused on going beyond email as just, you know, thinking about the entire digital experience. So the new article really thinks about both how brand uh, has shifted as well as the online tools. And I would say just starting with that last point, that's in part the biggest change in, in the past seven years, the tools we use, what we consider commonplace. You know, as I was writing, co-writing this new article, I looked back on some data and it was interesting to remember and think about Google Plus, (laughs) um, where, you know, in 2013, just as many people were, had accounts on Google Plus as they did on Instagram. Fast forward to now, Google Plus is a distant memory, uh, and Instagram has only risen in popularity along with new tools like Snapchat, TikTok. Etc. And even how we use Instagram, you know, though it was around in 2013, has changed. That you know, we now have Instagram Live interviews all the time. People are sharing stories. People, are, there are different things we can do on Instagram. We still can't post an active link on Instagram beyond our bios. That has not changed. Um, but there's there's a lot more that we can do. So what that means is, as there are new tools available, that means that your supporters, again, your supporters, your donors, your activists everyone are looking for new ways to connect with you and have just even higher expectations of what you're going to be doing with those tools and what they can expect to find when they do, you know, add you, follow you, see you in their feed. And so to your point, there's always new tools emerging right right now somewhere in a garage somewhere. (laughs) Someone's building the next TikTok before everyone's even using TikTok and there'll be new things. And even the tools that we're using today are morphing and evolving and changing, right? The use of email as a communication mechanism isn't what it was five, 10 years ago. Like you said, how we used Instagram previously or Facebook or Twitter, 
it's in constant flux, right? All mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's, you know, I think just what's, what shouldn't be in flux is kind of the, the approach. You know, there is a tried and true method, I think, to how we think about using these tools that hasn't changed in the past seven years, let alone 10, 20, et cetera, which is bringing a strategic mindset, thinking first and foremost, what's my organization's mission, right? What am I, what am I trying to do in the world? Connected to that, what then should be my goal for any kind of branding or communications? And with that in mind, who are the right audiences I should be connecting with? Who are the most important people that should know my organization, that I should be building a relationship with so that I can accomplish that goal and ultimately achieve my mission? And once I have that clear, then I can start asking questions like, okay, well, should I use Facebook? And if I'm using Facebook, what am I using it? What am I doing on there? And how am I either building my brand or widening my reach or building relationships in using that? So I think I remember, I think it was the book Groundswell, I want to say came out in 2007, one of the first books that really articulated an approach to social media, which had the post method, right? It was people, objectives, strategies, tactics, or tools or something was the T. And I still think, again, I mean, the, the idea of putting people first and again, thinking about your audiences and goals as it connects to your mission, I think has been around for a while and is still the, the right way to go about deciding what approach you should take and then related to that approach, what tools you should use. Because for example, you might go through that exercise and say, you know what, I really need to focus on building community or providing a space for my community to connect. And then once you're clear about that, then you can decide, well, am I going to create a group on Facebook? Am I going to create a group on LinkedIn? Am I going to host weekly dance parties on Instagram? Am I going to make a contest where people, you know, submit dance videos on TikTok? Because again, then it comes into why am I doing that? Why am I using these tools? Because again, it's advancing a strategy that's helping me reach a goal to reach an audience. So I think those things haven't changed. Sometimes we forget, we jump right into the excitement about a new tool or a new application and forget to ladder it back up. Fair, and you're absolutely right. We have to start with the why, Mm -hmm. right? Why are we doing this? you know, then getting into the who and the how and the what. But to your point, we we sometimes get fixated on the, ooh, there's a new shiny object. Is that a thing we should use? And, you know, it it goes back to, we'll start with the why. Like, you know, why are we doing this? What are we trying to accomplish? Who are we trying to engage with? Those Those are fundamental questions, right, that have been true for a long time. Like, I love you brought up the the post method. Like I remember (laughs) giving a talk where I talked about the post method and it's, you know, it's still true today. Just like starting with the why, which is, I think is also a Simon Sinek book, Mm -hmm. right? Still works, Mm -hmm. right? That that's true today as it was 10 years ago, right? As it was, you know, years and years before that. I mean, again, this is just like a, a best practice with communications that you should be centering around the why and the who I think that's been around before even, you know, Al Gore created the internet or email or whatever it was. (laughs) But it's hard because I know that you probably run into this. I certainly have when you're working with organizations and you're really, when, when the light bulb moment of, no, we need to start with the why, like, yeah, you're right. Ooh, what is the why and, and who, and isn't who everyone? And the answer is no, the who is not everyone. (laughs) The why is not everything. That that's a struggle sometimes of getting to, how do you get those two pieces to connect the why for who, mm-hmm. because sometimes 
the why for who is is different depending on the who, right? Whether it's yeah. supporter, an activist, a staff member, that motivation or the why that matters to them can can change, right? Mm-hmm. No, it definitely can. And I think um, just to reiterate a point, you sort of tucked into that comment. I'm often happy to say, please remove the general public from your communications plan or anything you're thinking about doing. It's too expensive to reach everybody. And you really likely have no need for every single person there is to know who you are. So really saying who are the most important people who don't know us, but should, or who are the people even who do know us, but don't remember us, don't have a deep relationship with us, haven't done more than just like our page or visit our site once. Uh, I think organizations, again, we, and I know this was the subject of another NP next, the sort of tension between acquisition and retention that often we're chasing not only new tools, but new audiences when there are warm prospects to build relationships with and tools maybe we're already using to use better. But to come back to your question, I think you're right. The motivation for audiences is different. One of the first places to start, I think, from a branding lens, right, coming back to the branding topic and all of this, is that we really believe branding is not a one-time only thing. It's not just a new logo or a beautiful website. It's really clarity around who you are, what your voice is, how that connects to, again, your mission. And then how do you use that to build relationships, to shift perceptions, to, to generate behaviors or actions? that help advance your organization's mission and maybe even lead to some kind of culture change. And I think coming back when we're trying to answer the why, it should always come back to the purpose or mission of our organization. And then thinking about where are we right now and where do we need to be given our organization and our strategic plan, also given the climate around us in this moment as we're recording this in July, 2020, there are um, a rise in conversations and recognition around the need to address racial inequality and racism, and organizations are bringing that into their brand, into their communications, into what channels they use and how. And I think we have to keep questioning these, and we have to first get clear around what do I want those audiences who know me to think of me? How do I want to make them feel? You know, in brand raising, which is the approach Big Duck uh, has developed and advocates for, we think about positioning and personality. Again, what's the big idea in someone's mind about you? What's the way you want to make them feel, the the tone and style? And if we can first agree universally what that should be, then we can get into different audiences. And while we want those audiences to have the same general perception, we might get into thinking about their motivations and why should they know us? Why should they care about us? Why should they feel a certain way? And that might be when we start getting into segmentation and using different channels to reach different people. Now, you've used the B word and the C word, branding Mm -hmm. and culture. And it makes me wonder, what is that intersection between the two, between brand and culture? Because oftentimes branding is about a promise you're making to people, but those promises or expectations are often culturally driven, Mm -hmm. right, from the organization. You know, what, you know, culture is what you do when no one's looking. How do you see that interplay between brand and culture? Well, I think uh, maybe the shortest thing that comes to mind is the delivery on that promise, right? I can say, I want you to think my organization is X and feel a certain way about it. But if the actual experience of the organization doesn't uphold that, then there's no way I'm ever going to have that association or perception of you. And that starts with your organizational culture. So for example, if an organization, a nonprofit organization or a social good organization 
wants me to think that they're friendly and accessible, but I try to get them on the phone and there's a voicemail system from hell and I can't get anybody on the phone after 30 tries or I send an email and no one ever writes me back, then they're not going to ever feel friendly and accessible. And that system may be set up and that email might not be responded to because of the internal culture and who, um, who has access to what and who makes what decisions. So it's all related. And I think there is the internal culture piece and the external culture piece. And I think oftentimes with branding, the focus tends to be on the outside. It tends to be, all right, what do I want? The board, the donors, the volunteers, the activists, the funders, the policymakers, the media, what do I want them to think of us? You know, and what do I want them to know? And we forget to prioritize. Exactly. And the number one staff really for a brand, if you want it to stick, you want it to make that impression has to be the staff because the staff are the people who are representing the organization day in, day out. And if my experience with that staff person is not one that in some way reinforces what I'm hoping for, then again, that organization is not going to be able to uphold that desired perception, if that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. And I'm, I'm totally riffing here on the spot, but it's almost like there's an ABC, right? Authenticity is that connection between brand and culture that you might want to be perceived some way as a brand, but you actually have to walk the walk and exactly. talk the talk, right? It has to be authentic. It has to match. And that's the connection mm-hmm. to culture, right? Saying, here's what we're trying to achieve, or here's how we are. But to your point, if I call into the organization or if I you know, participating in program work or whatever it happens to be. If, if I don't feel like it matches, I, I call BS on it, right? I know, exactly. And I think, you know, I, uh, one of the things that we're often saying when we work with organizations is that when you're thinking about your brand strategy of things like positioning and personality, one foot might be rooted in aspiration. This is what I hope people think of me. This is who I am on my best day and authenticity, right? You can, you know, you can still look forward. You can look to like, these are the best of the best. But you have to own that authentically or else you'll never achieve it. So I was imagining some kind of Venn diagram when you were talking with the ABC. Um, The other, you know, I think where tools come back into play, where where digital applications, your email, your website, social is another chance to express that culture and to live up to the authentic promise that the brand is trying to achieve. And again, if I, um, how I use these channels, what I say, but also how I respond when there are comments, when there are things submitted, really, I think, is where, um, where it really comes to light and, and where if I am not responding in a way that is how I'm hoping people think about me, then I'm never going to get that association. Or if I'm responding in a different way, then maybe I need to revisit what it is I want my brand to be, because maybe that's not correct. Yeah, and we're now, you know, way into a world of, of multiple communication channels and digital. And so it's, it's not a new thing anymore. So being responsive is table stakes, right? It's not even really open for debate whether you should be responsive. I think we're now moving into how are you, how are you responsive? And, and I, I definitely see this with, with organizations where they struggle on what's the, the personality or tone of their responsiveness, that some organizations, you know, there's a bit of whimsy, <laughs> there's a bit of tongue in cheek, there's the, the use of memes, uh, other things. And then there are other organizations where you can tell the personality has been um, developed and filtered by a committee of 12 people to decide what was mm-hmm. the tweet response we were going to send. Is that something oh, you definitely. see too? And usually the, um, the latter where it's gone through 12 people 
is probably devoid of personality. It sounds so neutral that it is forgettable. It doesn't make any kind of impression or, or leads to a negative impression. And I think that's certainly one of the things we saw early in the advent of social media was that 12 people have to approve this tweet and trying to get people to realize that's not how a tool like Twitter works. It needs to be more instantaneous. It's very real time. It's not like the 30 people who have to approve your newsletter. It's different. I think, um, I hope organizations have created systems and different ways of working together where that's not the case for every single thing that goes out, but it may still be. And I think the more, the more that there are reviews and people getting involved, the more water, watered down it becomes. But if we're clear about what we want our tone and style to be, and we work together on a few examples, then hopefully, you know, two or three people can review something and not a committee of 12. Yeah, one of the things you touch on in the article is related to that, which is in addition to speed, which is super important to your responsiveness, you also have to have accuracy. Like the accuracy of the information is, is important, but it can't take forever to respond. It's, you, you need that combination of speed and accuracy when you're trying to use these channels to engage. Yeah, and I think, you know, to the point of accuracy, not only is it around the right information is there, it's correct. So if I look and that your date is from, you know, 9 p.m. to 10 p.m., that's actually when it is. And it wasn't the the wrong date or time wasn't posted, but also that it's that it's up to date. Um, I think there are a lot of times we might go and see go to an organization and their upcoming events page are things that happened a year ago. Uh, It's clear they haven't updated it. It's clear they're not paying as much attention to the details or only some people have the correct information and not everybody in the organization knows it. So that when I then call the organization or email or tweet them and ask them, Hey, when is that upcoming event? And no one knows, or they tell me the wrong information because they haven't communicated internally, then that becomes frustrating. And again, erodes that desired brand perception and relationship that you're hoping to build. The other thing we've talked about a little bit here is obviously how the world with, with COVID has changed how we operate and how we communicate. And certainly several months ago, there was the the wave of communication, social, digital, et cetera, from both companies and organizations of a lot of just, hey, we're just checking in on you. Hey, we're just letting you know we're here and we're doing the work and um, you know, those those sort of just you know outreach messages. How has you seen that shift in the past few months? And then where are you seeing organizations you know, how are they continuing to engage and communicate when we're living in, we're living yeah. in a new normal? Um, you know, I haven't fully tracked this. I know that you are the data master, Steve. So you probably have a blog somewhere that talks about subject lines or something about this. So you can correct me. <laughs> but I think in my anecdotal or lived experience of this question, I, I think you're right. In the In March and April, there was a flurry of emails, everything from the gym I go to, some of the rest on, restaurants I'm on an email list for, two nonprofit organizations. Everybody was reaching out and, and checking in, and certainly that barrage has stopped. I think organizations that were programmatically impacted by COVID and have made shifts, I think, are still communicating pretty frequently and, and showing how they are still available. So, for example, arts and cultural institutions that you may not be able to go in person to but are still producing content for you to experience virtually. Summer camps this summer uh, in 2020, as we're in this moment where a lot of camps were not able to meet, are hosting events on Zoom so that um, families can still get together or children can get together and appreciate 
that moment and looking for other ways to pivot and offer support, offer programs. So I think organizations where what they did, they're still doing what they did. They just adapted. Organizations that weren't, they're programmatically weren't as directly impacted by COVID have, have, I think, communicated less. What I see now, again, as I mentioned earlier, is really looking at communications that have come through as a surge in response to the need to address racial equity. And I think um, since the broadcast, the, you know, the video that surfaced of George Floyd's murder and people really having to confront that, though we have been dealing with racism for, for over 400 years, I think um, that has obviously spurred weeks of protests, deep conversations, but I'm seeing it really impact the nonprofit sector where staff are organizing or speaking to boards about cultural activities they've seen from executive directors or other staff, and there is a real reckoning happening. And I'm also seeing those organizations send messages out, post statements in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think it'll be interesting. Uh, and I, what I hope to see is that momentum continue through the summer into the fall. Well, I hope it's not just a moment. Yeah, I think you, you're hitting on something really important there, which is we've all had to have a certain amount of uh, digital adaptability, <laughs> just made a new word there maybe, uh, about our ability to adapt these different moments when things come up, whereas, you know, in the past, either, oh, well, this will blow over, or, again, we need a committee of 12 people to decide the messaging, and it's going to take six months. There's a lot more need for adaptation at a certain level of speed that is just, in for some organizations, mm -hmm. uncomfortable. And for others, it's more natural for them to be responsive. In yeah, that and I think particular when organizations are dealing with what they might find to be sensitive communications topics, this is where it does help to certainly have more than one person reading it. I know we certainly internally at Big Duck, as we've been working on our own diversity, equity, inclusion, and commitment to anti-racism, and talking about what we're doing internally or even what we share externally, the more eyes we have on something, the more feedback we get, it tends to be better. We're questioning even what we're saying. We're, we're not doing certain things. We're removing certain things. I think it is helpful, certainly, to get feedback because people will see this in different ways. And I think it can be helpful to remember. One of my colleagues often is saying this. This is a marathon, not a sprint. We've got a long way to go. And we have to do this work bit by bit. Um, that doesn't mean we can just, you know, sit and say we're going to do it. We really do have to do it and take action. But it's important to do one step at a time here. And to if your organization has never addressed in this conversation racial equity and you're really at the beginning stage, what you need to focus on is different than an organization that's a social justice organization that's led by people of color who are talking about this every day um, and bring a different lens to it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with the marathon versus sprint. And that also means you've got to pace yourself, which is okay, but you, but you can't yeah. stand still. So you, know, you, you might have to pick your pace, but, and, and get in, like you said, in some organizations, it may be more of a fit for the culture or the mission of the organization for others. They've got to, you know, it's baby steps and then, and moving from there, but, but starting to move in that direction of being able to be responsive, be authentic in a much more uh, sort of at the speed of life, how these things mm -hmm. are, are, are happening today. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's very true. 
And uh, for some organization, it's a real struggle that goes back to the earlier point of culture. And I think looking and questioning how a culture how a culture works and what's happening in our culture. And I think that is important to address first before we do think about any external communications. Sarah, really appreciate you coming back on the show and um, sharing some insights from your latest uh, NPS. It was a pleasure. Always great to talk with you. Thank you for having me. And I think if folks are interested, we've got an ebook all about strategy that really thinks about how you approach, you know, setting goals and audiences to come back to that earlier point. We also blog and have lots of other content on our site at bigduck.com if folks are interested in digging into these topics more. Perfect. And we'll, uh, we'll put some links in the show notes there as well. So that's it for this episode of the SG Engage podcast. This episode brought to you by the letter B. Thank you. Thanks for listening.